So with all of that being said, let me invite you, if you've got a Bible, turn in it to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. We are continuing this morning in a series that we began a few weeks ago, one called Mastermind, which kind of sounds like it should be a supervillain. Uh, but, but the basic premise behind this series is that for the next couple of weeks, we want to sort of identify some of the strongholds in our minds, and with the Spirit's help, to sort of seek to tear them down. The, uh, the goal of this series is to begin a conversation around some of the challenging patterns and issues of mental health that we might experience in the course of our life, and, and maybe even begin the hard work of addressing some mental habits we have, some of which might be sinful that we need to repent of. And this is especially appropriate in the season in which we find ourselves as the world, and especially our country, is beginning to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic, beginning to uh, step out of this season of prolonged lockdowns and isolation. I know for many people, this particular window has kicked up some mental health issues that they weren't even aware that they had. I think of a, a really dear friend of mine, he lives in Portland, we'll call him John for the sake of anonymity, uh, and I officiated the wedding for John and his wife, and John is one of the most sort of carefree guys that you could imagine, uh, friendly, doesn't seem bothered by much, and he reached out to uh, a couple of us via group chat back in the winter to let us know that he'd had to go to the emergency room uh, because he was suffering a panic attack, and he'd never had anything like that before. He didn't know what a panic attack felt like, and so he thought he was having a heart attack. He thought he was dying, and he looks at his wife, and he's like, I, I, we have to go to the, the ER. I don't know what's wrong with me. Well, it turns out uh, that he was suffering a panic attack. First time in his life, never felt anything like that before. And as a result, he's begun the hard work of sort of identifying a counselor and, and working through how to cope with this anxiety that has emerged in the midst of the pandemic. Perhaps you found yourself here, anxious in a way that you've never experienced before. And I just want to say up front, I think it goes without say, but let me just repeat this. Um, Mark and I are not trained in counseling. We are trained in theology. Uh, I'm not a licensed therapist. I'm a licensed theologist, if that's even a thing. And so the, I realize that, that this series is not going to be the end for many of you. I don't expect one sermon to radically change uh, your perspective, especially if you're dealing with issues of anxiety or depression or even uh, struggling with thoughts of self-harm. I want to encourage you to seek help and seek counseling. There is no shame in that. I have found myself in counseling at multiple points over the course of my life. We as a church are committed to walking with you through that. I don't even know if you're aware of this, but in the back corner of our uh, lot, there's a building for Hope for Her, which is a ministry that reaches out to uh, women who are in difficult circumstances. But in that Hope for Her building, there's a counseling center too with licensed counselors who can walk with you through things like anxiety and depression. So the goal of this series, it's, it's not to solve every issue that might come up, but to begin to help you think about what it might look like for Scripture to inform the way that you approach the life of the mind. To help you begin to think, what does it look like to cast our anxieties on Jesus? What does it mean to trust the Lord as we navigate something like depression? 
how do we do what Paul asks us to do and take every thought captive to Christ? That's what we're after in these next couple weeks as a church. And this week in particular, I really want to drill down on the sort of things that ought to be occupying our mind. If part of this series is identifying the, the things that we need to, to work to either repent of or uh, do away with mentally, then, then what are the things that should fill our mind? What are the things that we should meditate on? Because God has built us in such a way that what we fixate on will profoundly shape the way that we live in the world. Let me kind of explain what I mean by that. My, my Uncle Jono is a tremendous artist. Uh, for those of you who are parents of young kids, you might have seen his work in our Holy Week devotional this year. All those pictures were my Uncle Jono. He's a boss. And when I was younger, I wanted to be an artist because I grew up watching Dragon Ball Z, and my goal was to draw Super Saiyan Goku. And if you don't know what that is, your kids do. And so I, I told my parents, like, I, I want to be an artist, and Uncle Jono knows how to draw, so maybe he can teach me. And so I started taking art lessons with my Uncle Jono, and much to my dismay, the first week of art class is not teaching you how to draw superheroes. It's how to draw, like, lines and circles. And so my Uncle Jono, first thing he teaches me is how to draw a line. And this is the approach he suggested, is that you put two dots on a paper, and you put the tip of your pencil on one dot, and then you fix your eyes on the next dot and you just drag your pencil until it makes contact. And that might seem counterintuitive, but there's something about the way that our brains are wired that we will go, ooh, oops, uh, we will go in the direction of what we fixate on. We will move in the direction of what occupies our minds. We will find our lives drawn towards the patterns and the habits that we most think about. A couple months ago, my wife and I sat down for a podcast with a movie critic and a pastor, a guy by the name of Brett McCracken, who writes for the Gospel Coalition. And Brett has just recently written this book that I would recommend to you called The Wisdom Pyramid, in which he's trying to encourage Christians to be more careful about the information that they intake. And he, he kind of plays on something that we're all familiar with, uh, which is the food pyramid. Maybe you grew up with this in your high school or middle school cafeteria. It's the pyramid, and on the bottom are the things you should eat the most of, and on the top are the things you should eat the least of, but what we all actually eat the most of. And he sort of applies that to information and to media and to the things that we take in and allow to occupy our mind. He says there are certain things that we should spend a significant amount of time dwelling on, but there are other things that we should spend much less time, maybe even no time, placing in our minds. Maybe you've heard that phrase, uh, you are what you eat. There's a sense in which that's true. But there's another sense in which we could kind of tweak that phrase for the present conversation. Uh, you are what you think as well. And just like if you spend all day every day eating ice cream sundaes, you'll find yourself unhealthy, you shouldn't be surprised to find your emotional and spiritual and mental health compromised if you've spent days, weeks, months, and years consuming the equivalent of McDonald's fries. And after a year of many people being locked in their homes and binging Netflix and cable news and filling every waking moment with social media and gossip and controversies, I'm not sure that there is any other way to describe many of our emotional and spiritual and mental lives other than profoundly unwell. We shouldn't be surprised by that. 
We shouldn't be surprised that we find ourselves mentally and spiritually sick when we've spent the last year consuming the spiritual equivalent of Sour Patch Kids. It's going to do something sooner than later. Fortunately, Scripture gives us a guide for how to cultivate spiritual health. Scripture gives us a guide for what it is that we should be ingesting and and fixing our minds on and what we should think about and consider and ponder, the sort of things that will help us grow in wisdom and maturity. And that's what I want to focus in on today. So we find ourselves in a passage that Mark mentioned last week. This is Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. I happen to have this verse memorized in a different translation from the Donut Man cassette tape that my mom would play. I heard one person who who grew up evangelical and knows the donut man. But let me read our passage for us, and we'll dive into it this morning. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. A number of years ago, there was a series of books that I started to notice in the supermarket, especially in the checkout aisle of Publix. And it was kind of like a, a, a book about dieting. The basic premise was when you really, really have a craving for something like a Red Robin Burn and Love Burger, which I may or may not be tempted by at this very moment. You've got one of two options. You can go for the Red Robin Burn and Love Burger, but that's going to lead towards high cholesterol and, and all sorts of health issues. You can eat that, or you can eat something else that may satisfy some of those cravings that, that may actually help your body build itself towards health. The, the series was called Eat This, Not That. I don't know if it's still a thing or not. But there's a sense in which Paul is sort of offering for us in this passage the moral and the spiritual and the intellectual equivalent of these books. He's basically saying to Christians, think this, not that. Think about these things rather than their counterparts. So rather than thinking about what's false, think about what's true. Rather than thinking about what's dishonorable, think about what's honorable. Rather than thinking about what's unjust, think about what is just. What's corrupt, instead think about what's pure, and on and on and on it goes. But this list, New Testament scholars recognize, is probably not unique to Paul. Things like justice and purity, truth, these are what we might call the virtues of the ancient world. These were things that the average person, Christian or not in Paul's day, would have seen as being valuable. Truth matters, justice matters, purity matters. And yet Paul isn't interested in sort of copying pagan morality just for the sake of it. Because ultimately, things like truth and justice and purity, these are biblical values. It's as if Paul says to the church in Philippi and to the church here at Baylife, if non-believers know that truth matters, how much more should Christians commit themselves to truth? If non-believers know that justice matters, how much more should Christians who worship the God who is just be committed to justice? If non-believers can recognize somebody who's acting in an honorable or noble way, how much more should Christians be committed to that? And so he says, think about these things. Fix your mind on these things. Because what occupies your mind will determine the course of your days. Paul begins his list by saying, whatever is true, you should think about that. 
And this is, this is supremely fitting for Christians, perhaps more than anybody. The most famous passage, uh, in, or one of the most famous passages in John's gospel, uh, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus doesn't just claim to speak the truth. He claims to be the truth. He is truth itself. And so we as his people, we as Christians, we should love and proclaim and celebrate and reflect often on what is true. But how do we know what's true? That's, that's Pontius Pilate's question during Jesus' trial. Jesus says, for this purpose have I come into the world to bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? That's a question our culture struggles to answer. We often talk about there being your truth or my truth, but the idea that there's a truth out there that everybody has to bend the knee to, it's hard for people. And yet the commitment of Christians for 2,000 years is that truth is not just an abstract concept. It is a person. It's Jesus. He is the measuring rod by which all reality is tested. And we uncover who Jesus is and, and the truth that he expects us to live by by studying his word. We believe that where scripture speaks, God speaks. And God's not in the business of telling lies. And so, if we want to be a people who are committed to the truth, if we want to be a people who reflect on the truth, who set our minds on the truth, we have to be a people who are deeply committed to Holy Scripture. We have to be committed to reading it and to meditating on it and to memorizing it and to wrestling with it. We have to be committed to listening to pastors and authors and theologians and people who can help us understand God's Word better where maybe our uh, our understanding is limited or, or not what it ought to be. And on the opposite side of things, we need to be quick to avoid those who don't teach the truth about God's word. We need to be discerning about the, the teachers that we listen to. So if you want to put this command into practice, to think about the truth, to set your mind on that, the first and most simple way you can do it is open up your Bible and read it. And I realize that like this is quote-unquote big church and you're expecting something like really profound and, and that's kind of a Sunday school answer. But let me just tell you something. Sometimes Sunday school answers are set before you because they're true. Sometimes those simple answers keep getting regurgitated in church because it's just the way things are. If we want to be a people of the truth, we can't do that without being a people of the word. We can't do that without being a people who are committed to Scripture. So let me ask you, Baylife, how has the last week looked when it comes to your engagement with God's Word? What about the last month? What about the last year? If you have spent more time watching the news cycle than you have on your face before Scripture, you've got a problem. Don't be surprised if it forms you in unhelpful and maybe even sinful ways. Let me ask you, who are the, the primary Bible teachers that you spend your time reading Whose podcasts are you subscribed to? Mark uses this term that, that I think is fitting. He talks about the blabbit and grabbit preachers. These are the, the pastors who say, you know, if you're really following Jesus, then everything's going to go great in your life. And if it's not, the problem must be you. If your Apple podcast stream is full of people like that, can I please beg you, unsubscribe from all of it. There's no way you can follow a crucified king and not expect some difficulty in your life. But on the other side of things, 
There, there are those who are maybe committed to teaching the truth of Scripture, but they're so harsh and they're so argumentative and they're so divisive that, that that's not helpful either. One of the things that I'm constantly struck by, it's like the ignored commandment of Paul. It comes in 2 Timothy. He says, the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but gracious and kind, able to gently correct those who've gone astray. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he says the hope is that uh, those who've gone astray could come to a knowledge of the truth. So contrary to what all of culture is screaming, screaming is not a virtue of godliness. Graciousness is a virtue of godliness, even as it comes marked with a steadfast knowledge of the truth. So if the pastors and Bible teachers you listen to are making you angrier at those who are misguided, then they are stirring up compassion and a hope that they'd come to know Jesus, probably time to unsubscribe. Of course, the Bible is the, the foundation for how we know what is true. It's the lens through which we discern what's true in the world. But the Bible does not contain all possible truth that could be known. And, and before you think that I'm speaking heresy here. This is my point. Uh, the Bible is probably not the best book you should go to for like a step-by-step in how to build a rocket ship. Uh, in the same way that it's probably not the best manual for how to perform open-heart surgery. No, there, there is truth out in the world that God has placed there and given us the ability to come to know. And that truth is God's truth as well. The French theologian John Calvin puts it like this. All truth is from God. Consequently, if wicked men have said anything that is true and just, we ought not to reject it, for it has also come from God. And so where Scripture is ambiguous, or maybe where Scripture is silent, we need to be okay with reaching out to those that God has granted wisdom, even if those people might not necessarily know him. And saying, help me understand this. There's a phrase that I think cuts against this sometimes. And I think I understand in the best sense what it means. Uh, Very often we say, don't take my word for it. Do the research yourself. Now, at its best, I think that is really good advice. Right? We don't want to be uninformed. We don't want to be people who are tossed to and fro by every news article or, or every tweet that we see. Being well-informed is a a crucial component of living a responsible life. But sometimes when we say things like, do the research yourself, what we actually mean is, if you just Google this enough, you too can be an expert. And that's not true. Let me me give you like a real personal example of how that's not true. A couple years ago, I started experiencing some, some weird symptoms. And so, of course, the first thing I did is I went to Dr. Google And then I went to uh, my general practitioner, WebMD, and I read everything I could about my weird symptoms. Everything I could. And by the end of the week, I had done the research and was convinced that I had terminal cancer. (laughs) Right? Because that's where WebMD always takes you. And so for the, the week after that, I was like getting my affairs in order. And, and worse than that, like, Mickey and I are engaged, and we're, you know, talking about wedding stuff, and I'm like, I know you're excited to get married, but little do you know that I might not make it. <laughs> now, if you can see where this is going, I'm here, I'm fine, that was three years ago. So after, quote-unquote, doing the research, 
I actually went to the doctor's office. That's a wild idea. You know, the person who spent $100,000 and 10 years of their life to be trained in medicine. And very quickly, the doctor contradicted Dr. Google. Go figure. You don't have cancer. You're fine. Here's what it is. Here's how it goes away. Stop worrying about it. But I did the research. I spent probably 60, 70 hours on Google. And that still doesn't make me equipped to speak to that. There, There is something about wisdom that says we can let go of the wheel and go, I need help coming to the truth on this. And all truth is God's truth. And if God has given somebody else wisdom to help them make sense of something that I might not understand, there's no shame and there's nothing wrong in taking that seriously. And there are real-world consequences to not setting our minds on what is true, to setting our minds on spin, to setting our minds on uh, things that are polarizing and divisive and only half true. Because when we believe things that are untrue, it can cause us to live in the world in ways that don't honor God, that are out of step with reality, and can maybe even cause us to be cruel and unkind and make sinful assumptions about people who are made in the image of God. Let me give you maybe a a two-personal example here since I'm putting myself on the chopping block. There are dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, people who I have no doubt love Christ, pastors and fellow Christians, who would look at me and they would go, he's a millennial, he's got tattoos, he listens to punk rock music, And then they would notice, and he wears a mask anytime he's out in public. And they would make a whole host of assumptions about me and what I think and what I believe and where I'm coming from. But here's what's true. My dad has stage three cancer. And by God's grace, after three months of chemotherapy and then a month of chemo plus radiation, as we're awaiting surgery, it seems as though he's going to be okay. Well, but if that doesn't put you in the category of immune compromised, I don't know what does. My wife is five months pregnant, which is another thing to celebrate. Praise God, yeah. But that also makes you immune compromised. And there's not a night that I don't go to bed that I don't plead with the Lord that that child would grow up knowing their grandfather. I'm not living in fear. I'm trying to be wise because there are people in my life who are in compromised positions. And you could filter seeing the millennial with tattoos and a mask through the lens of all of the spin of partisan cable news and what that says about what somebody believes and you would have no idea about any of this stuff. And it's not true. So please, please, please be careful about the voices that you use to help you interpret the world. Err on the side of grace. Assume that there's more than what you can see going on in somebody's life and maybe they don't fit into that neat and tidy box that you read about on social media. Don't make assumptions about the truth. Seek to understand it. Don't fill your mind with falsehood. Spend and spend your day inundated 
with the endless social media, cable news cycle, conspiracy theory garbage. Pick some trusted voices, people who know what they're talking about. Turn off your TV, open up your Bible, and meditate on the truth. Fill your mind with what's true. Paul goes on. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure. He says, think about those things. Honor, justice, purity. And if that is not a challenging command for our current age, I don't know what is. To think about what is honorable, just, and pure. There's a term, maybe you've heard of it before. If you haven't heard of it, you've likely committed it. It's called doom scrolling. Anyone familiar with this? Nobody? I guarantee you, you're all guilty of it. So let me illuminate what doom scrolling is. And and let me do it by way of telling you a story. This has happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to you. It's 1045 at night. You have work in the morning. You're just checking Apple News on your phone, getting ready to go to bed. And you notice this article about a celebrity who's been caught committing some sort of horrific act. So you click on it. You say, I'll just read one more before bed. And you read that, and at the bottom, because Apple News is mind control, they have an article about a Fortune 500 CEO who's just been arrested for fraud, and you go, man, I kind of like watching people like this go down. I'm going to click on that. And so you click on that one. And at the bottom of that article, you notice another article about this asteroid that almost hit Earth last week. And so you click on the asteroid article, which leads you down probably a 30-minute rabbit hole of other asteroids that may hit Earth at some point. And then you start standing outside and staring at the night sky and wondering if Armageddon was prophetic. And by that, I mean the movie, not the battle in Scripture. And then you go down the rabbit hole even further, and you read the story of a parent who lost a child early to some horrific disease, and on and on and on it goes. And by the end of it, it's three in the morning, you haven't gone to sleep, you're huddled under your blankets, terrified of the world in which you live. It's doom scrolling. You just scroll from one doomsday scenario to another, to another, to another. Paul tells us that what we should meditate on, what we should reflect on, is what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure. And I don't think he's saying here that we should look away from injustice or tragedy, that we should only engage with material that makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, but at the same time, he is encouraging us to fill our mind primarily with stories of truth and beauty and goodness. So let me encourage you, don't spend more time thinking about the ways that sin has corrupted God's world. Don't spend more time doing that than you do thinking of the ways that God is still at work in this world. That should be what you give your mind to. Spend time thinking about what God is doing rather than what sin is undoing. And and if you you need help with that, let me just give you some real practical uh, examples. Christianity Today is this magazine founded by Billy Graham. It's been going for like 40 years. Every month... They publish a story at the end of their digital or their uh, print magazine about somebody who has put their faith in Jesus who was an unlikely convert. Maybe they were in a cult growing up. Maybe they were a victim of some sort of horrific abuse. They were angry with God for years. Or maybe they, they were a hardcore atheist and never thought that they would find themselves walking down the aisle and bending the knee to Christ. I think most of those stories are actually online for free. Spend some time reading that. 
Spend some time thinking about what Jesus is doing, even in the face of the brokenness of this world. Something that that I try to reflect on often are the great stories of the heroes of the faith who've lived honorable lives, who've lived lives that were faithful to Jesus, even in difficult circumstances. One that I've been hung up on for years is this elderly man named Polycarp, who was the Bishop of Smyrna. And at 86 years old, he was arrested for being a Christian around 150 A.D., And the Roman centurion felt bad for him because he was an elderly man. And he kind of said under his breath, if you renounce Christ, we'll let you go. And you can live out the rest of your years in peace. And Polycarp said, 80 and 6 years I have served him. How could I deny my master and my king? And he went to the lions. That is someone who has lived an honorable life for Jesus. Think about that. Spend some time reflecting on that, or maybe even more practically, when you're in life group this week, take some time and just say, what's God been doing in your life with the people that you're studying scripture with? And spend some time thinking about it. Spend some time reflecting on it. And don't rush past it so you can get to the prayer request. We all know that the world is broken and full of suffering. But what we need to be reminded of is what is true and just and honorable what God is still up to. One of the final components of this verse comes a little bit later in verse eight. He says, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And here Paul is just like heaping on the adjectives at this point. Whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's anything at all worthy of praise, and his sort of implicit argument here is there is. You know there is. So celebrate it. Think about it. Fill your mind with it. Meditate on it. And this, I think, can be hard even for Christians because we hear Scripture's call to to follow Jesus means to take up our cross. We know what, what I mentioned earlier, that the Christian life includes suffering. But sometimes we can twist the call to follow Jesus and think that if we're not suffering, we're doing something wrong. And if we're not miserable, then we're not being faithful. But another part of the Christian life, in addition to being willing to suffer for the cross, is celebrating the goodness of God. Is stopping to to metaphorically smell the roses, to think about what is lovely and what is beautiful and what is commendable to think about what's excellent and praiseworthy, to set your mind on those sorts of things. Nije Gupta is a New Testament scholar who often works with pastors who are in difficult situations, maybe even on the edge of burnout. And in his commentary on Philippians, he says that one of his recommendations for not just pastors but Christians who are struggling is to set aside daily time to reflect on beauty and excellence. He says it like this, build in small and regular times of meditation on or interaction with something wonderful. Reflect on it, admire it, and enjoy it. Can I commend that to you? Wherever you might find yourself mentally, there is nothing wrong with enjoying the good gifts of our good God. Take some time to enjoy the the flavors of a great meal prepared by a chef that knows more about what they're doing than I do. Take a minute to watch the sunrise 
from your front porch or the window of your apartment. Enjoy a good cup of coffee with a friend who encourages you. That's Paul's commandment here. Reflect on what is lovely and beautiful and noble and excellent. Another uh, theologian we talked to on the podcast last year was a guy named David O. Taylor. He works at the intersection of faith and art. And in his most recent book called Glimpses of a New Creation, he makes the case that the arts have something central. They have a central role to play in the life of the Christian. Because when we encounter beauty and excellence, it is a tiny window into the new creation. It's a tiny window into what the world will be like when Jesus sets everything right. And we need that. We need to see where it's all going in order to make the journey that is so difficult. We need to know that the world doesn't end in injustice and falsehood and dishonor and impurity, but it ends in truth and beauty and in goodness. My wife and I have experienced this in a really tangible way in the last couple of months. I mentioned that um, she's about five months pregnant. And for the women who have carried children in this room, uh, it's no joke. Thank you. Uh, morning sickness is not an urban legend. My wife has been feeling it. It's hard. And when it's the, the third time in one day that she's spent wrapped around the toilet, it can be really challenging. But every five to seven weeks, she gets to go to the doctor. And she gets another uh, ultrasound. And we get another picture of our child. And we see how much he or she has grown in the last five to seven weeks. We get a little snapshot of the goodness of what God has coming. And when it's really hard, and I wonder if I shouldn't just like make a bed next to the toilet because we're gonna be here for a while, we think about those pictures. We think about those snapshots. We think about those shadows of what is coming and that helps us to stay the course. Truth, justice, honor, purity, excellence, beauty. These are foretastes of what God has prepared for those who love him. And when we think about them and reflect on them, it gives us strength for the journey ahead. Lately, I've been reflecting on this old hymn of the faith written in 1901, which is now 120 years ago. It reflects on the beauty of creation, and it says this. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings, and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees and skies and seas, his hand the wonders wrought. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, my God is ruler yet. I think Paul would agree with those words. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, there is pain. Yes, there is injustice, and yes, we must confront it. 
But even when the wrong seems strong, the people of God must make time to think about God's goodness in the midst of all this brokenness. We could spend our days like so much of our culture has, scrolling through social media, filling our minds with falsehood, turning into venomous, hostile people. We could gorge ourselves on everything that's wrong in the world and we could lose hope in the process. But Paul offers us a better way. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, there is anything excellent or praiseworthy. Think about those things because that's where the world is headed. These are glimmers, shadows of what all creation will look like when Christ returns to make it new. So Baylife, this week, would you think about such things? Would you reflect on such things? And would you see if the Spirit doesn't use it to transform you? I want to invite you to stand as we conclude our time together and to sing the words of this hymn as we reflect on this world that God has made and his goodness to us in the midst of it. Would you sing with us, This is my Father's world. This is my Father's Lord, you reign in the heavens. And even in a world that has been fractured and torn by sin, there is so much goodness. Your kindness breaks through. God, where we've grown weary, where our hearts are heavy, where we're anxious, teach us, Lord, to think about what is true and good and beautiful. To glimpse this new creation that is coming so that we can journey faithfully towards it as we await our King, Jesus. We ask these things in his name, and we say amen. Bay life, go in peace. We'll see you next week.